Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 45. This is the word of the Lord. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it and drank from it himself, and he did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirst and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped in this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to people, Come, see what the man, what a man told you, told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Then, then they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps drought a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They, they said to a woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard of for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Thanks be to God. So, um, good morning, everybody. First Baptist Church, I'm honored to be asked to share with you through your fall series on the gospel theme of welcome and hospitality. I just want to say that thank you to the worship team. Uh, you have no idea how you've blessed me this morning. Personally, I know I've blessed a lot of people, but for me personally, it's been a very, very dry summer. And the worship and the spirit in which you've led worship um, and Justin's uh, um, you know, reflection or rehearsing of Psalm 63 was quite moving for me personally because, and maybe some of you here too as well, because we, many of us, um, have been in a dry land where there is no water. And your leading in worship, the choir, is just like um, a drop of cool water in a very thirsty, thirsty um, tongue. So. God bless you. Thank you so much. So, we also, so um, this week, uh, this uh, fall, we're um, going through a series on the gospel theme of welcome and hospitality. David kicked us off, uh, kicked off the series last week, uh, reflecting on the wedding feasts at Cana, where Jesus turned 180 gallons of water into wine. Now, I have some friends who would say, woohoo! <laughs> Perhaps some of you here, ah, 180 gallons worth of wine, woohoo! <laughs> now that's a party. But the miracle um, really uh, displays the generosity of God's grace. And God's grace, God's generosity doesn't end there. And it, it continues to show up in the life of Jesus, right? The feeding of the 5,000 mentioned last week also. The feeding of his disciples. Hey, David, you know that I'm listening to your message, right? <laughs> I hope everybody else is too, but I am. Thank you, David. 
Sharing meals around the table becomes central in the expression of the gospel. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is for you. The same night he took the cup and when he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples uh, and told them, this is the uh, new covenant in my blood. Right? The sharing of meals has come central in our um, remembrance and our recalling and reliving uh, of the gospel. So it's not something that is outside of the gospel message, but very central in the expression of the gospel and the hospitality of God towards us. And as David reminded us last week, Jesus really wants us at the table. All of us. All of us. He really does. The Gospels features an abundance of tales that revolve around the practice of shared meals. These stories serve as a testament of how the grace of the Gospel is brought to life through the simple yet powerful act of welcome and the offer of hospitality. And it's important to note that in the ancient Near East, hospitality and welcome were not merely empty gestures of polite customs. Instead, they were a reflection of the ethical and the moral values that guided the people of that time. Furthermore, hospitality wasn't extended only to familiar faces, but also to strangers, individuals whom they've never met before, like the you young adults in your midst uh, today, right? Individuals they've never met before. Jesus elevates the act of hospitality as a central expression of the gospel. He says this, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Christine Paul, reflecting on the redemptive power of hospitality, makes this remark. Most of the, of the ancient world regarded hospitality as a fundamental moral uh, practice. It was necessary to human well-being and essential to the protection of the vulnerable strangers. Hospitality assured strangers at least a minimum of provision, protection, and connection with a larger community. It also sustained the normal network of relationships in which a community depended, enriching moral and social bonds among family, friends, and neighbors. And we see this value played out in St. John's recollection of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. Jesus is taking the scenic route from Judea back to Galilee. He's tired and his disciples have gone into town to buy some food. And conveniently alone, Jesus encounters a woman who's there to draw water. John is careful to note that she is a Samaritan woman. Uh, considered to be heretics by the, by the Jews, their Jewish cousins. 
And it's around midday, the text says, when this woman approached the well where Jesus was sitting. And as John zeroes in on this private conversation between Jesus and this woman, he implicitly points out that this woman was there by herself. While mid-afternoon work like this was not completely unknown, it was rare. Likely the other women from her village had already congregated at the well earlier in the day when it was cool. And in a culture where women rarely left their homes, drawing water was not only a chore, but also a social gathering where they could share the latest news or the latest gossip. But this woman chose a different time to come, opting to arrive alone during the sweltering heat of the midday sun. And as their conversation progressed, it becomes apparent why she was alone. She had broken societal norms by confessing that she did not have a husband. Instead, she had given up on the idea of marriage and was living with a man who was not her husband. The reasons behind her decisions were unclear. But the outcome, I believe, is pretty clear. Like avoiding the other women of her village, she has chosen the worst time of the day for her chore. And as she begins to draw water, she's surprised that Jesus acknowledges her, much less asks her for a drink. No self-respecting man, much less a Jewish man, would even look at her, much less admitting to her that he needed help. He needed help. And in asking for assistance, Jewish uh, Jesus has dispersed any notion of superiority and is taken in on the role of the stranger. And in mid-Eastern uh, mindset, this was no easy thing. Christine Poles makes this observation. Strangers are people without a place. To be without a place means to be detached from the basic life-supporting institutions, family, work, um, polity, religious community, to be without networks of relationship that sustain and support human beings. I want us to ponder um, this uh, Christine poll for a moment. Think about it. In identifying with the stranger, Jesus has identified himself with the needy and the vulnerable. And in his act of vulnerability and need, he opens the door for a meaningful exchange. In a world often marked by division and prejudice, we find Jesus, the Jew, transcending societal norms and cultural boundaries by engaging in a conversation with a Samaritan. And a woman at that, <laughs> unthinkable in his day. So it's not surprising then that she makes this remark. I am a Samaritan woman, he said to her. You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans, much less a Samaritan woman. But despite the historical enmity between Jews and Samaritans, Jesus chose to extend a hand of welcome, breaking down the barriers of bias that had long 
separated these two groups. And as the conversation unfolds, Jesus addresses the woman of uh, the spiritual thirst, offering her living water. He gently exposes her struggles and wounds, revealing that he knows her. He knows her story. And acknowledging her pain, Jesus creates a safe space for her to open up and tell her story. So, um, what are we to make of this story? How do we respond? Well, let me offer a few observations. Making room for strangers <laughs> is risky business. Is risky business. Now, when Jesus, now when Jesus um, learned that the Pharisees had uh, heard that he was making disciples and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted for Galilee. Jesus intentionally makes a circuitous route through Samaria, a road less traveled by good Jewish men. He leaves the road commonly traveled to, through unfamiliar places just to meet with this lonely woman in the midst of her daily task of fetching water. Now, some of you know that my wife and I served overseas with Canadian Baptist Ministries. After a couple of years in language studies, I was invited by somebody to share my story with a group of leaders. But I didn't know where I was going. So the leader of this particular organization asked me, will you, will you go to this place and wait? So I found myself in this, <laughs> in this town, right? Um, I don't know where, <laughs> to be picked up by someone I don't know who, to take me to a place to speak with people I have never met. Being strangers, reaching out to strangers is risky business. And it can be uncomfortable. So if the church is to live out the life of Christ in the world, there are times, lots of times, where we're called to step out of our comfortable little world and engage with people that are not so comfortable. To become strangers, to connect with strangers for the love of God. There's a challenge before us. Secondly, making room for strangers, strangers requires that we carve out safe spaces for honest dialogue and conversations. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. You have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you, have, uh, you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Jesus adopting the role of the stranger in need enables this woman to enter into a meaningful conversation with him. His, op his open invitation for conversation gives her the courage to confess to a stranger yet, to a stranger. Can you imagine this? And I, I imagine that it would be just a, 
a whisper that's coming out of her. I have no husband. Can you hear the pain in that, vo- in that declaration? A woman in those days without a husband was the most vulnerable of peoples. She had little rights, very limited ability to fend for herself, and divorce was a frightening thing for women of the first century in the Middle East. It's a frightening thing today. The husband held the rights to the marriage contract, and he only he could dissolve it, the marriage easily. But the woman did not own that contract, and she, if she wanted a divorce, uh, she'd have to get a male relative to stand in for her. A woman in the first century Middle Eastern culture was ill-protected against the injustice often perpetrated on her by men. And so this woman not only suffered the humiliation of one divorces, but five divorces. More than likely, her husband divorced her, leaving her to fend for herself. With no skills and no education and scant resources, what was a divorced woman to do? She had to attach herself somehow to another man just to survive. We do not know the nature of her relationship with the man she's currently with, but a woman of her reputation in that culture would not have fared well, I imagine. With whomever she hitched her cart to, her story would not have been a happy one. Confessing to a stranger she had no husband must have been painful, as confessions of this sort often are. But Jesus indeed makes room for her to tell the truth about herself, and in facing the truth, he gives her room to begins begin healing and a route to restoration. Safe places allow for heart-to-heart conversations. St. John only highlighted their conversation with her confession. It may have started with the confession, but I don't think it ended up that way because she goes to a village and says to to her village that Jesus told her everything she ever did. Do you hear that? Everything. It may have started with a confession, but I doubt it ended with it. She was able to share everything about herself with Jesus. And we're given that permission every day to share everything honestly about ourselves with Jesus. And carving out safe spaces for honest dialogue is essential for meaningful relationships. It allows us to really know one another and cultivates trust, creating foundations in our relationships that are not easily broken. In his book, um, Intimacy, Henry Nowen makes this Um, observation. We probably have wondered in our many lonesome moments if there is one corner in this competitive, demanding world where it is safe to be relaxed, to expose ourselves to someone else, and to give unconditionally. It might be very small and hidden, but if this corner exists, if this corner exists, it calls for a search through the complexities of our human relationships in order to find it. Friends, wouldn't it be 
nice if folks could see the church as that safe place to be ourselves. Making room for strangers involves also removing barriers that separate. The woman said to him, Sir, I prefer to preserve your prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain, but you said that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You Jews say that. The many commentaries I've read on this verse centered around the word prophet and the theological imperfection of uh, the worship practice of Samaritans. And though I agree much with much of their analysis, I think there's uh, is an even more basic explanation for this woman's interest in the worship life. My guess is she's thirsty for God. Jesus knew that. She's thirsty for God. She identifies with um, Douglas Copeland in his book, Life After God, who confessed these words. He says, my secret is that I need God that I'm sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me to give because I no longer seem capable of giving to help me to be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness. To help me to love as I seem beyond being able to love. The barriers she faced, including her own sense of inadequacy, was the constraints placed on her by institutional religion. She rightly perceived the barriers that religion has set up to identify who's in and who's out. She clearly points out this distinction, the distinction with her people, right? Our fathers, but you Jews, Samaritan, this mountain, Jews, Jerusalem, the reason for the separation is their different wheel of scripture. The Samaritans only recognize the Pentateuch, the first five books. And in Deuteronomy 27, the Lord tells uh, Abraham that on the Mount Ebal and Gerizim, the people of God was to set up the altar for worship. But the Jewish people held that uh, all of the Old Testament through the monarchy and the prophet uh, were canon and a shift in their center of worship happened to move to Jerusalem. Now, it's really important to understand that this woman, as a woman, she may have been viewed as inferior in her time, but she was no fool. She knew what the stakes were. She clearly, clearly understood what was going on. But I think for her, it's more than abstract theology. For her, this was personal. She's fallen out of favor with societal norms. No one has accompanied her simply to fetch water. And my guess is that she was likely not welcomed with open arms by her faith communities either. And Jesus dismantled all barriers that religion and his religion, her religion and his religion have erected against people like her and drills down to the heart of worship. Not this mountain, not Jerusalem. Truth, worship in spirit and in truth. 
quite a radical shift, I believe, for her. In Jesus, she discovers that God welcomes her wherever she may be, whatever she has done. And in Christ, she need not go to any special place, undergo any special rituals to meet with God. She simply needed him, the fountain of living water that she's been thirsting for her whole life in spirit and in truth. And in as, in, in, in as much as our rituals are important, I'm not against rituals, they're important to our spiritual formations, they can also be a hindrance if we make idols of them and worship the rituals rather than what the rituals, our rituals are pointing to. They ought to give us direction and structure for a mature interaction with God who loves us. They're not meant to separate but a means to connect us more profoundly in our pursuit of truth and reorientate our hearts and our spirit towards heaven. Well, what are we to make of this story? In a world often marked by division and competition and prejudice, we discover from Jesus ways to disarm violence and division. Right? It's a risky journey when we seek to transcend societal norms and cultural boundaries. But creating safe places for folks, as no one, no one says, to be relaxed, to expose ourselves to someone else, is integral in the care and the healing of our wounded souls. So church, I don't know all the answers as to how to make this happen in your context, in my context. But if we're serious about the gospel, we have to work hard to create safe places for a hurting world. Our acts of hospitality are like wellspring of living water, providing nourishment to souls parched by loneliness, rejection, and neglect. When we extend a genuine welcome, we provide not only physical sustenance, but also affirmation of someone's worth and belonging. Just as the Samaritan woman's encounter led her to transformation, our hospitality has the power to ignite, ignite positive changes in someone's life. Just quoting um, now and again. In our world full of strangers, estranged from their own past, culture, and country, from their neighbors and friends and families, from their deepest self and their God, we witness a painful search for hospitality, for a hospitable place where life can be lived without fear and where community can be found. Although many we may, might say even most strangers in this world become easy, easily the victim of a fear of fearful hostility. It is possible for men and women and obligatory, <laughs> obligatory for Christians to offer an open and hospitable space where strangers can cast off their strangeness and become our fellow human beings. 
the movement from hostility to hospitality is hard and uh, full of difficulties. But still, that is our vocation as Christians, to convert the hostess to a hospice, the enemy into a guest, and to create um, the free and fearless space where brotherhood and sisterhood can be formed and fully experienced. So may the congregation of First Baptist Church Vancouver and every church in our union be known for making room for strangers. It would be risky, <laughs> for sure, as you create safe spaces for vulnerable people and may involve in yourself some very difficult conversations. But the gift of hospitality is not some add-on to the gospel. It is really the central theme of the gospel. This bread, this wine, for you, for you, for you. So allow me to make this following challenge. Perhaps you're already practicing this among yourself, or perhaps it's a baby steps toward what you want to become. Take a look around. Spend some, take a look around. Don't just look ahead, take a look around. Take a look around at the people who are sitting beside you, behind you, around you. Take a look around. This is not difficult. Take a look around. <laughs> right? Take a look around. These are your friends, your people, your community. And I get, I, my, my, I, my guess is that there's probably somebody in this room when you're taking a look around that you really don't know. You've worshipped with this person for 40 years, but you don't know him or her. That's why church relationships are so fragile. Take a look around. And make an effort to invite that person that you want to know, that you don't know actually, to a meal. Break bread together. Share a bowl of rice, noodles. I like noodles. <laughs> and the Lord perhaps will show up in that shared moment and something transformative will take root and bear fruit. You have that opportunity with all these international students here. Even if you did it for one of the 34, you've done it for all. Okay? Take a look around. And may the Lord lend you his courage as you participate in his mission in this very, very, very strategic city on the edge of the Pacific. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. You've taught us um, to center our worship and our lives around this 
simple elements of bread and wine. May we live that out in our personal lives as we engage in your mission in the city and around the world. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.